Well, it is a great honor to be here. I want you to know that uh, Josh and Steph mean the world to me, and I love them, and I'm proud of them. I want to redeem the time, so uh, we're going to pray and jump into the Word of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I'm at a disadvantage. I do not know the people in this room. I do not know anything about the people in this room, but you know everyone in this room. Father, you know the things they hope, you know the things they fear, you know the things they dream, you know the things they dread, you know the things that they've told everybody, but more importantly, you know the things they've never whispered to anybody. And because of that, you're the one who can minister. So Lord, through the word of God and the spirit of God, will you unlock the code of each heart in this place and minister to it today? In Jesus' name. And we all agree together saying, <clears throat> well, today I want to take a few moments and I want to talk to you about questions about death. Questions about death. The Bible is very clear about our journey on this thing called planet Earth. It begins the day that you're born and it will end the day that you die. And let's be honest. The questions that people have about life don't typically center on the day they were born. They center on the day that they will die. And so there's a lot of questions about that. Now, I'm a pastor. That's all I've ever done. I pastor people. I'm with people on their best day. I'm with people on their worst day. I'm with people when they feel like they're on top of the mountain. And I'm with people when they feel like the mountain's on top of them. And I've been in the room 17 times holding the hand of individuals when they took their last breath on this planet. So 17 times, not just being in the room, but being the one who was holding their hands when you heard that last breath, when you felt that last beat of blood in their body 17 times. Now, what I can tell you is this. Every time I've walked out of those rooms, there have been questions. People begin to have questions because sometimes people have uh, pronounced faith and they believe certain things. But many times there's people who aren't sure what they believe and there are people who are uncertain about what they believe. And so questions come. And one of the things that I've learned is that wherever you have your greatest questions, that needs to be where you have your greatest faith. So whether, wherever you're going to have your biggest questions, that's where you need to have your biggest faith. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse seven says this, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now you've got to understand we teach that verse in a thousand ways, but the way it was meant to be taught is this. When you're in the room and you're holding the hand of someone who dies, you're watching them as they take their last breath. You're feeling that last beat. Here's what sight tells you. It's over. It's done. There's nothing else. You'll never see them again. There's nothing else beyond it. I've been there 17 times. Every time my sight said, it is over. It is finished. It is done. There's nothing more. You've watched it. This life is totally finished. That's what sight says. But what faith says is the next verse. To be absent from the body is to be present 
with the Lord. See, I'm looking at sight, and sight says, there's no more. This is done. This is finished. There, you'll never see this person again. You'll never hear from this person again. It is final. The most final thing that you ever see is to be in that room. That's what sight tells you. But faith says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, wherever we have our greatest questions, we have to have our greatest faith. Now, the Bible spends a whole lot of time making sure that we get this. So throughout the Bible, it is weaved in. I want you to understand this moment of death. I want you to understand what is going on. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, it puts it this way. It says that God has written eternity in our hearts. God's written eternity in our hearts. Someone says, well, I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter. God's written eternity in your heart. Well, I'm not sure there is a God. It doesn't matter. God's written eternity in your heart. The default code deep inside you is that God's written eternity in your heart. And what eternity says is that your life is bigger than this life, and there's more to life than this life, that we're not just consumed with this life because there's a greater life and eternity's been written in our heart. Every person, every person, it doesn't matter whether they believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, eternity, something saying, you were meant for something bigger, there's something greater, there's something more profound, there's something larger than this life. It's not just this world that you're living for, there's something bigger than this. And so throughout the Bible, God just always emphasized the fact that eternity's been placed there. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, it describes you and it says, may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, completely, spirit, soul, and body. And what it does is it describes the uniqueness of who you are. See, no other part of creation has three dimensions to it. Some parts of creation have one dimension. Other parts have two dimensions. You're the only part of creation that has three dimensions. See, you have a spirit. And the reason the spirit is important was that you were created in the image and likeness of God. And in John chapter 4 and verse 24, it says this. It says, God is spirit. You're the only part of creation that can connect to God, that can have a relationship with God, that can know God. But one of the things about spirit is this, is that your spirit isn't disposable. So I pick up this Thing of water right here. I take a sip from it. If I were to finish it, I don't have any problem taking that plastic canister, finding a disposal, putting it in there, never to think of it again. But that's not who you are. You have a spirit and it's not disposable. It's going to go on beyond this world and beyond this life. So much so that God, writing through Moses, declares this in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day. It says all heaven, all of creation one day will stand before man and will say this. It says, I set before you life and death, 
blessing and cursing. So when people sit there, they're going to say, hey, I didn't know certain things. God's going to say, all creation's my witness. You were given something that no one else was given. Eternity was written in your heart. There was something in you that said that your life is bigger than this life. You have a spirit. You were meant to connect to me. All of creation knows this. You don't get to say that you were ignorant of it. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, you choose. It's not your mama's choice. It's not your daddy's choice. It's not your girlfriend's choice. You get to choose. You get to choose what you're going to do with eternity. You get to choose what you're going to do with your heart. You get to choose it because God created you where your spirit will not be disposed of. In fact, throughout the Bible, you always see God as he takes this moment that is so profound, death, and he always weaves it in scripture. And so in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, uh, Josh and I grew up in the same group, and this is one of those frothy kind of verses. People get real excited about it. It says in there, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In the groups I come from, that's a double hanky service. Let's just sit there and whip that thing around. We're going to dance. We're going to shout. I mean, this is it. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors over sickness, disease, over poverty, over this. But when you read the context of it, Paul is specific. What he does is he gives you four extremes. And he says, you're more than conquerors. But the first extreme says this, nay, in all these things, you are more than conquerors in death and life. Now, I need you to understand that no one in this room would ever write that verse that way. Here's how we would write it. You're more than conquerors in life and death. Only God starts with the word death. Why did he do that? Why did he say that you're more than conquerors in death and life? Because he was saying after death, there's still life. So the worst thing that can happen to you on this planet, you die. God says, I've written eternity in your heart. I've given you a spirit that's eternal. I've set before you life and death. You get to choose. But I'm telling you that after death, there's still life. Jesus wanted you to understand this. He wanted you to get it. So he told this story in Luke chapter 16. And the story that he tells is about two men, two decisions, and two lives. The first man is a man that's rather wealthy. He's the individual that in our day would be driving the best, wearing the best, possessing the best, living in the best. He would be the the individual that the economy flares up and down. It didn't affect him because he always had enough. But then there's another man. And this man's name's Lazarus. And this man isn't on that side of life. He doesn't have the best of everything. He has the worst. In fact, he's a beggar on the street. He doesn't have a place to live. But he just begs to try to get food. And he's not only that the dogs would come and lick the wounds that were on him. And so he was sick. And so you got these men on different sides of life, the one who had everything and the one who had nothing. But Jesus said, two men, two lives. Lazarus dies. He goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. 
For those of you who are unaware, at that time, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't died, so there wasn't access to heaven. So in the Old Testament, Abraham's bosom was a place of paradise that was reflective of what heaven would be. He went there. But the other man, the rich man, the man that had everything, when he died, Jesus said he went to hell. Now, see, that always bothered me. It didn't bother me that hell was mentioned. It bothered me that Jesus said someone went to hell. Because that wasn't the image I want. That wasn't the, the idea of Jesus I want. See, some of us that grew up in church, we've seen those images of Jesus holding that little sheep so close. And he's just cuddling that little sheep. That's the image. I didn't want the image of Jesus saying, that man went to hell. In fact, really what troubled me was is that if you read the 66 books of the Bible, what you find is that Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in scripture. No one talked about hell more. You know that Jesus, that loving Jesus, that kind Jesus, that sweet Jesus, he is the one who kept mentioning that word hell repeatedly. He talked about it continually and that bothered me because it didn't fit my image of Jesus. It's not what I wanted. I wanted the image of Jesus, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was the image. I could handle someone like Jeremiah being an individual who talked about hell because God said, I've given you a mission and a ministry and you're gonna preach your whole life to people and none of them will ever respond and believe. Well, that guy deserved to look at people and say, you're going to hell. I mean, he's going to speak and no one's ever going to listen. Or like we like to call it in ministry, the average Sunday morning. And so as a result of that, he's sitting there and he has a right. But Jesus, and it always bothered me. Why was he the one that mentioned it so much? And then one day it hit me. The reason Jesus talked about hell so frequently and profoundly was that he wanted you to know why he was dying for you. See, he wanted you to know why he's going to climb a hill he didn't have to climb, carry a cross that he didn't have to carry, be nailed to a cross that he didn't have to be nailed to, hang on that cross when he didn't have to hang, when he would die on that cross when he didn't have to die, and he would go into a grave that he didn't have to go into. It was because of one thing. He wanted to give you an option, something other than hell. But see, people misunderstand hell. And the reason they misunderstand it is because they don't realize that what hell is, is God giving people what they say they want. See, all around us, there are people who say, I don't want you mentioning that name Jesus around me. You know, I'm not one of those church people. You just keep that Jesus stuff to yourself. I don't like that name Jesus. You don't talk about that name Jesus. You don't mention that name Jesus. You know what? It's politically incorrect if you say Jesus. You're not supposed to do that. You don't advance your faith by saying Jesus around here. That's not correct. And do you know what God was saying? 
I have a place for you where you'll never hear the name of Jesus mentioned. Because if you can't handle a little bit of Jesus down here, why would you want a lot of Jesus up there? You understand in heaven, they're going to use that name Jesus a whole lot. It's going to be used frequently and continually. And if it bothers you, hey, they mentioned Jesus in school. Well, they mentioned Jesus at work. They've got, God says, hey, there's a place where you will never hear because every metaphor about hell is the opposite of Jesus. What is Jesus? He's the light of the world. What is hell? Utter darkness. Jesus is what? The bread of life. He feeds our needs and our soul. What is hell? It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. People can never get satisfied. Every metaphor is the absence of Jesus. But when you start talking like that, everybody says, but what about Aunt Sally? Because everybody has an Aunt Sally. You know who Aunt Sally is. She's just that nice person. She's just that kind person. She's that person that gives the best birthday gifts. What about Aunt Sally? Well, let's talk about her. See, when Sally was a little girl, once a year, she would watch as society would begin to have a few weeks where it changed. All of a sudden, the music in stores would change. All of a sudden, there would be decorations that would show up, and people would start decorating the outsides of their house. They'd start decorating their trees. And during this particular time, there were words and songs that were sung, and every year at Christmas, God was whispering to Sally, I came for you. Emmanuel, God with us. Every 12 months of her life, there was a month where Christmas, God's gift to the world. God was whispering to Sally, Sally, I came for you. Then as Sally began to grow older, there'd be a time when she'd want to hang out with her friends, but there'd be this one time a year when her friends would say, well, I can't hang out. She'd say, well, why can't you hang out? And they say, well, I'm going to church with my family. And she'd say, well, you don't usually go to church. But then they'd say, but this is Easter. We always go to church at Easter. And see, in the way that at Christmas, God was whispering, I came for you. At Easter, God was saying, I died for you. So every year, when her posse decided not to hang out with her, when her crew decided not to do anything with her, there was this time because God was saying, I not only came for you, but I died for you. But then as Sally got older, what happened was she had friends that died and she'd go to their funeral and someone like Pastor Josh would get up and he'd read from a book. And he would read words and spend a few minutes talking. But every time God was saying, not only did I come for you, not only did I die for you, but at those funerals, God was saying, I have a plan for you. See, all around Sally, her whole life, God was whispering, but she was always busy, too much to do. But then she'd get up early and she'd see a 
gorgeous sunrise. And God would say, if you think this is something, you ought to see heaven. Sally, I have a place for you. And she'd see a beautiful sunset. And God was saying, if you think this is special, I have a place for you. It's called heaven. I came for you. I died for you. I have a plan for you. I have a place for you all around her. Then she'd see a mama hold that baby for the very first time. How pure. And God was whispering, if you think this is pure, you ought to experience heaven with me. See, all around Sally, God was saying something. All around Sally, God was whispering something. But every time he said something, whispered something. She was too busy, too much. My spiritual father, when he was born, was born with three major heart defects. They really were surprised that he survived childbirth. But they said he would not live very, very long. And eventually his body would get too weak for him to survive. So by the time he was 17 years of age, he was bedridden. He didn't have enough strength to get out of bed. There were days when he didn't have enough strength to utter a word. And he would just lay there. But the doctors knew that he was going to die soon. And as they knew that, they had told the family. It could be any minute, any day. So someone was always at his bedside. One day when he was 17, his sister was at his bedside. He turned to her and said, go tell mama that I'm dying. He could just feel it. As she began to get up, he felt as his spirit began to leave his chest, down through his midsection, down through his legs, down through his feet. He said it was like someone slipping a shoe off. And he said literally he stood at the foot of his bed, looking at his body, looking at his sister. She began to get up and run out. He said as he stood there for a minute, all of a sudden he started descending. He said he could look and he could see the lights of his room go dim. Then he could see his house grow dim. But then he said he was looking at this thing called planet Earth and it grew dim. And then he was surrounded by darkness, but it hit him. He wasn't ascending, he was descending. He said that the darkness was just so intense. But as he began to descend through the darkness, he looked down and he could see flickers down there. And he said instinctively he knew. It was the portal, the gateway to hell. He said as he was beginning to descend, he began to cry out. He said, but God, but God, I go to church. He said, but God, but God, I've been baptized in water. He said, but God, but God, I go to Sunday school. But he kept descending. He said he was doing everything in his power to stop it, but he couldn't. Then all of a sudden, a voice and a language he did not recognize came out of nowhere, and all the darkness began to shudder, and he began to ascend, and everything happened in reverse. He saw the earth. He saw his house. He saw his bedroom. He saw his body. He slipped into it. This is going to happen three times, but people ask, well, why did he come back? It's because of the other side of the story. And that is that 
when his sister ran out, his mama was on the front porch. And when she ran out and said that he was dying, she started praying and she prayed so loud. She prayed so loud that all the cars within three blocks stopped to hear what was going on. Now, here's what I want to say to those of you that are believers. Your prayers cannot change someone's decision. But your prayers can give someone more time to make the right decision. And see, I stood at caskets where Christians were overwhelmed. And I've looked at them and I said, were you praying? You have no right to complain to God where you haven't prayed. Too much church for some of you. This happened to him three times on the fourth time. When he got back, he's laying on his bed and he prays a different prayer. He says, God, I'm asking Jesus to come into my life. I'm asking him to be Lord of my life. See, sometimes pastors like me have made a mistake. And we made some of you think that because you're good at church, that means you're good at God. And being good at church doesn't mean that you're good at God. Because you can sit here and you can be good at doing the church thing. You can know all the sign language. You can know the secret handshake. You can even know the words. You can know what's next. But none of that changes anything if you don't know him. And see, there's young people who think, well, I've gone to church. But you going to church doesn't matter. There are teenagers who literally will come to church because they're trolling some young girl. And they'll holler out, hey, you know, I've been to church so many times. It's not this location doesn't do anything for you. It's when you believe in him that does something for you. Let me say it subtly. Hell's going to be filled with people who went to church. Because it's believing in him. Well, mama went to church. It's not mama's faith. He set before you life and death. You choose. You got a choice. Jesus wanted to make sure we got this thing. And so he gives us some details. And I want to walk you through them real quickly. In verse 22 of Luke chapter 16, it says this that when Lazarus, the poor man, died, it says that the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom, paradise. The first thing Jesus wants you to know is that when a Christian dies, they're never alone. They're never alone. The angels were there and were carrying him immediately. People sometimes ask me, they say, what's it like for a Christian to die? Well, it's like when you were a little kid and you were out playing at the family picnic and you were playing with your friends and you've been playing so long and you get tired and finally mom and 